There's a wonderful statement about freedom in the epistle to the Galatian church. It's over near the back of your New Testament. And it'll be found in the third chapter of the epistle to the Galatians, beginning at verse 23. Let's see, I think I've preached 26 Fourth of July sermons. And every one is meaningful to me. And in every one, as I stand, get ready to stand to preach, I breathe a little prayer in my heart that this will not be the last one. And we shall always be free to do what we're doing. Galatians chapter 3, verse 23. But before faith came, we were kept in custody. We were in prison under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, that we may be free, that is, that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all the sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. We've gathered today across America to celebrate our freedom, but what is it that we're celebrating? Somebody said that freedom is, the, is doing what you want without being responsible to anybody except your wife, the police, your boss, your insurance company, your doctor, your airline, your federal and state authorities, and your neighbors. Well, that's not much freedom. We have said that there is nothing more precious than freedom. But what is it? Is freedom the right to do anything you want, to say what you feel like saying, to believe what appeals to you? Is freedom having money in the bank and your children grown and on their own and being single again? What would true freedom be for you? A definition. For the Apostle Paul, true freedom meant that he no longer had to submit to the constraints and the requirements of the law of Moses. And this law had become an almost intolerable burden for him to bear. And there was no one who attempted with more diligence to keep the demands of the law than the Apostle Paul. He strove to, to meet the requirements of that law. And he lived in night and day terror that he was not going to please this angry God of the Jews. And he sought diligently to submit to the requirements of that law and it become a heavy burden, almost intolerable to keep. And then one day on a Damascus road, he met Jesus Christ and he was freed. It was like being let out of a cage. 
He found that in Jesus Christ, a man's acceptance by God was not dependent upon his extraordinary service, but he was accepted by God because of his unfailing and extraordinary grace and love. He was freed. He experienced what Jesus meant when he stood before the Jews and declared, You shall know the truth. And he wasn't talking about acquiring uh, correct information. The word truth is the masculine in the Greek. He was talking about himself. He said, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. True freedom, my friend, is knowing Jesus Christ as a personal Savior. Now, what is this kind, what, what is special about this kind of freedom that comes in knowing Jesus? Well, in the first place, it means that we can feel good about every area of our lives. Now, don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm not subscribing to the, the modern hedonistic battle cry, if it feels good, do it. There is no doctrine that could be more damaging to our lives than that. But I am declaring the doctrine of free grace that says that God accepts man just as he is and that his acceptance of God is not on the basis of his merit in the diligence of his doing the law, but upon the free reception of God's offer of grace through faith. For the Christian religion is not a religion, a rule book religion. It therefore must not be interpreted as a religion of prescriptions. There is no book anywhere that says in order to be a Christian and stay a Christian, you have to do this on Mondays and you can't do this on Tuesdays. The Christian religion is a living relationship with Jesus Christ. And because it is a relation, it is a religion of relationship with Christ. It is a religion of freedom from the freedom from the external laws and man-made rules. Now that doesn't mean that once we are in Christ, everything is permissible. That would amount to moral and spiritual anarchy, a thing totally contrary to the new life in Christ. But it does mean that all of the constraints of the Christian life spring from within. I keep the law and observe the law of God, not in order to get God to accept me and love me. I keep the law of God because He already has accepted me and He loves me. And understanding that, helps me or enables me to accept myself and love myself. And it does away with all this guilt I've carried around as excess baggage. I'll always be grateful for my home, where I was, the home in which I was raised. My parents were good people. They were godly folks. They, they had me in church. We had prayer together as a family. They are good people. But my father never really knew how to express love or to receive it. He was totally unaffectionate. Um, he was a good person, but he couldn't express his love and he couldn't receive it. And therefore, he couldn't really ever express a compliment to somebody. He couldn't even receive one. The result of that, I think, was that he was pretty narrow, pretty uh, rigid and, and cold and unaffectionate and somewhat critical. 
And he could always find the fault that was in me, my little character flaws and mistakes and failures, and I had a lot of them, and I deserved everything he pointed out. But he never could bring himself to see anything good in me or tell me about it or compliment me. And so all of my childhood and early youth was spent trying to gain his approval. I sought diligently to get him to accept me It was like climbing a ladder. You know, you get to the top, there's one rung up there, and you get there, and there's three more, and you get those, and there's two or three more. I never could feel that he accepted me. And to make matters worse, my preacher during those years was one of these kind of preachers that preached on Sunday what he got mad about on Friday. (laughs) I mean, if somebody made him mad, he ripped us on Sunday. Or if he heard something in town, you know, He'd bring it out on Sunday. And I can remember sitting there just scared to death. He was going to point me out. I don't know how he would ever know that I smoked cedar bark out behind our barn, but I just had a suspicion that he knew all about that. And I, I I was getting ready for him to call my name and chew me out about it. And I can remember sitting in the church thinking as a young boy, I wonder why this guy's mad all the time, you know. And I can remember thinking, I wonder if God can ever be satisfied or pleased with anything we do. And I had all this information in my subconscious. I know it was fictitious, but all the information I had in my subconscious was that in order to be accepted, you have to be perfect. And so I literally sought perfection in my own life and everything I did. And to seek perfection is an unrealized goal. Nobody can ever obtain that. And the byproduct of an unrealized goal is always guilt. It's always guilt. To have an unrealized goal that you strive to attain and, never able, and are never able to attain it. And so I carry down around this guilt like baggage shoved down into my subconscious. William Faulkner tells about the man who preached in chapel at Fisk University. And he started his speech. He had a glass of water and he put some dirt in it. And he stirred that dirt up until it was dissolved in the glass of water. Then he started speaking. And he went through his whole speech. Then he reached over and he took the glass of water and noted that all the dirt had settled down to the bottom. It was still there, but it had just settled down to the bottom. So I had all of this guilt shoved down into my subconscious. And I felt that I could never be accepted or approved by anyone. And sometimes when you shove that guilt down into the subconscious, it appears in ways that we don't even feel are related to the original misdeed, like fear and anxiety and depression and irritability. But you know what I've discovered, and I am discovering every new day I live, that I don't have to do anything to gain the approval of God. I'm already accepted just as I am. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul says that we are accepted in the Beloved. He has accepted us in Christ. And all of this guilt that I've built up just went away. And this is what the Apostle Paul means in verse 29 when he says that when you you belong to Jesus Christ, you become the offspring of Abraham. And that doesn't mean much when you trace your genealogy back to Abraham until you go back to that original promise and note when God stood before Abraham and Abraham stood before God and God said, you go out and count the stars and you go out and count the grains of sand on the beach and that's how many Jews there are going to be because of you because I'm going to bless you 
And you're going to be a blessing, blessing to the nations of the earth. And then you note one thing he says to Abraham. He says, you're my inheritance. And we all know that an inheritance is an acquired acquisition from someone else. Now the Apostle Paul talks a lot about our inheritance in Christ, but I want you to know also that he talks about a lot about God's inheritance in us. And it means that we are precious to Him, not because of anything we've ever done, but because we have responded in faith to what He's done in Christ. And because you are His inheritance, that guarantees two things. It guarantees that He's going to always protect His inheritance. I mean, He's got too much invested in you to lose you. When you became a Christian, God called it guardian angel over. And He said, I'm going, to, I'm going to assign you to Gerald Tidwell. Now you guard him. You watch him. And He puts you in Jesus' hand and He put His hand on Jesus' hand. For you mean so much to Him, He's not going to let you go without doing everything infinitely possible to keep you. And not only is He going to pro- pro- uh, protect His investment, He's going to perfect His investment. When my father died, I was made the administrator of my mother's estate. I write her checks for her. I pay her bills. I take the money, not much of it, but I've invested it uh, for her. And I keep that investment going. And I do it for two reasons. I seek to find the best investment for that inheritance because I want her to always be able, as she lives out her life, to live comfortably without want or need. And I do it for the second reason. I'm always trying to find better investments for her money because I know someday that's going to be mine. Now God may use a little heavenly sandpaper on your life and He may discipline it to smooth off the rough edges and He may even break you because a servant never reaches his maximum potential until he's broken by God. But all the time he's doing it in order to perfect his inheritance because you're special to him. And then we can sing that song, I am loved. I am loved. I am free. To, I, I can risk loving you. For the one who knows me best loves me most. I am loved. You are loved. Won't you please take my hand and we're free to love each other for we are loved. To know Jesus Christ is to be freed to like myself just like I am. This kind of freedom in the second place means that I have a new perspective on responsibility. George Bernard Shaw said liberty means responsibility. That's why most men dread it. The responsibility of freedom is to live a responsible life. Listen to me now. The irresponsible use of freedom means that you are going to lose that freedom every time. If you drive your car irresponsibly, you soon lose the freedom to drive that car. Freedom means the responsibility to live a responsible life. The responsibility of freedom means to preserve it. And there's nothing that can be quite as easily lost as freedom. Let me say something parenthetically this morning about the freedom of this country. Since this is the 4th of July, it's interesting to me that while the other nations are having to increase their security on the borders to keep their people in, 
We have to increase our border security to keep illegal aliens out. There must be something right about our country. A few years ago, you watched with me as the communists took over Vietnam. And all of a sudden, these people began to flee that nation by the thousands. And they got on these river boats. Many of them were lost, just trying to escape to freedom. The most pathetic sight ever seen on television were these mothers handing their little babies over to men on boats they didn't even know. They were really willing to risk turning their children over to men they didn't even know than to let their children grow up into communism. A recent survey by Freedom House indicates that there are 3 billion people living in 117 nations today under communism and dictatorship. Where does this freedom come from? For the most part, it was, it was purchased by someone else's sacrifice other than our own. Mrs. Bixby of Boston lost five sons in one war. And the president wrote her a letter and said, I pray that your grief will be assuaged by the good memories of the loved and the lost. And I hope you'll find some measure of pride in knowing that you have offered on the altar of freedom so costly a sacrifice. We are free today because on the altar of freedom, men have paid a costly sacrifice. Some of us heard Cleve McLarry give his testimony, Lieutenant McLarry, when he came back from Vietnam. In Vietnam, he lost both arms. Both arms were blown off. And he lost an eye, and he lost an ear, and half of his face. And after 26 surgeries, his face was rebuilt. And the men who served under him gave him a little plaque that reads, In this world of give and take, there are very few men who are willing to give what it takes. Now let me tell you what it takes to be free. It takes courage to win freedom. But it takes character to keep it Dr. Kenneth MacFarlane led a group of men across America just visiting and talking to American people. They went into the large cities and they went into the small villages and they just talked to folks in America. They were commissioned by the General Motors Corporation of America just to find out what people were like in America, to see what they were thinking so they could best market the automobile they were trying to sell. And after a year of traveling across America, they they came to make their report to the board of directors of General Motors Incorporated. And they made their report. And then they tarried for a little while to talk about something else. And this is what they said off the record. This country is in trouble. Our danger, said Kenneth MacFarlane, is not from without, but from within. Unless something changes, we're going to be destroyed, he said, not by a bomb, but by an ideal. The ideal being that we're not morally responsible for our conduct and we're not economically responsible for our welfare. I'm somewhat disturbed this morning when I read as you read 
that so many things, so much business of our nation has taken place in Washington without even any consideration of God whatsoever. And I'm here to declare that the ultimate ruler of the destiny of any nation is the Lord who created it. If my people obey my voice, we will be free if we obey His voice. Someone said to Abraham Lincoln one time, I just hope that God is on our side. And Abraham Lincoln said, That doesn't concern me not one bit, whether God is on our side. For we know that God is always on the side of the right. Then he said, But what is my constant anxiety and prayer is that I and this nation will always be on God's side. No wonder Benjamin Franklin said, If a sparrow cannot fall to the earth without his notice, is it probable that a nation will rise without his aid? I say no. We are morally responsible for our conduct. And we are economically responsible for our welfare. Now lest you get the impression that I didn't like my father, let me say something about him for which I am deeply grateful. He was a man who was economically responsible for our welfare. I mean, we never had all we wanted, but we never wanted. We never went in need. And I never heard him whine that his better-off neighbors ever owed him anything. And he was a good man because he worked in quietness, and he ate his own bread, and he never expected the government nor the church to take care of him. What happens when we're free is that we have a new concept of what it means to be responsible. It means our responsibility springs from within to serve God. For when Moses came down from the mount with that Ten Commandment tablet on his arm, he was not bringing some little ten little suggestions if people want to be religious. He was bringing the ten principles that are necessary if we want to stay free. This is what he said. God told me on the mountain that by His grace He made us free. He brought us out of Egypt. But He also told me on the mountain that if we're going to stay free, we're going to have to keep these laws. One last word, please. This true freedom that I'm talking about this morning is really just the freedom to choose who will be your master. For there is no such thing as absolute freedom. Alfred Luckett was right when he said, Every man is a prisoner of something. One's only choice is what will be his prison. And Charles Kingsley said, There are two kingdoms in this world. There is the false kingdom that says, I will do as I please. There is the true kingdom that says, I will do as I ought. There's no such thing as absolute freedom. Now it appears that 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 freedom means that you wouldn't have a master at all. But in practical effect, every person here has some kind of master, even if it's simply his own selfish desires that he heals to like a dog. For every man was made to be mastered by someone or something. In fact, the Bible says that you were made to be mastered by the divine other. For the Apostle Paul says, all things were created by Him 
and for him. And Augustine said it like this, Your heart will be restless until it rests in him. Our choice this morning is to choose to let Jesus Christ be our master. And realize what William Temple meant when he said, There is a freedom that is true bondage. And there is a bondage that is true freedom. Some of you, as young people, read Jack London's books. I read The Call of the Wild. One of his books was White Fang. Some of you, shake your head up and down if you remember reading that book, Call of the Wild, Jack Fang, Jack London's White Fang. Um, Mary Welch in her book, More Than Sparrows, talks about that book. White Fang was three-quarter wolf and one-quarter dog. And White Fang was, was beaten and kicked around by an Indian guide and by a white slave master. And his code of life, his rule of life was just to survive. And so as that three-quarter wolf, one-quarter dog lived under these masters, it really wasn't obedient to them that that wolf was just trying to survive. Until one day, Whedon Scott, you know the story, came and took that wolf dog to be his. And Whedon Scott had an ability to reach down inside that wolf dog and stir the dog that was there. And all of a sudden, Whedon Scott became the love master. Now listen to what Mary Welch says. Kind of long, so hang right in here. It's marvelous. Ties down all I've said. The dog had to overcome the full-grown wolf in him, and he did so. He brought that wolf and all his skills at fighting like a slave to serve the will of the new master. The dog made the wolf serve his king. Whereas he'd lived and fought to live, he now lived only to love and to learn what pleased his master. And he yearned eagerly to learn what the master wanted so that he could make this his will too. This made him necessary for him to put new labels on everything in his life. He judged everything, every person, by what it meant to the love master and treated it accordingly. Remember how fond he was of the flesh of tender birds until the day he found out that he was not supposed to kill and eat chickens. After just one short lesson from his love master, that five-year-old wolf in him lay down and slept in the chicken yard. The chickens just did not exist for him as a wolf anymore. They existed only as something of value to the master, and he must guard them with his very life if necessary. The new master let White Fang know his displeasure by means of a cuff on the ear. Not a hard blow, just a cuff that indicated displeasure. That cuff hurt White Fang's heart, not his ears. But it was a delicious pain. For, through, for though it wounded him deeply to know he displeased his love master, it was worth that pain to be able to discover one more way in which he could please his king and lord. His master was, master's will was his whole life, 
And his own love for the Master was the only discipline he needed. That love brought every selfish instinct into slavery to his Master's desires. He had found the kingdom of love and learned the right use of all its laws. Then all the food he once had to fight for was added unto him, plus the rapture of being useful to his master. That's what Paul found. He found a love master. And everything in his life he brought under the control of that love master. And as he served that love master, everything he needed in life was added unto him. And that, my friend, is what it means to be free. Some of you this morning are going to be saved right here in this service. We pray that you will. You've seen your friends come giving their heart and life to Jesus Christ, and that's exciting to us. And you want to be a part of that group that has declared their faith in Jesus Christ. I want you to come this morning and give your life to the love master. And find what it means to be able to love yourself and love others. Find what it means to, to know to live responsibly, to keep the freedom that's yours. I want you to come giving your heart and life to Jesus Christ on the very first word. And some of you have given your heart to Christ, but you've not been living for Him and you've not served Him. And we're going to ask you to step out and come, leading the way to say, I want to rededicate my life to the Lordship of Christ, to serve Him more effectively and more joyfully. And we're going to ask you to come and place your life here in the church. Some of you have indicated you wanted to do that. Oh, I can't wait to see who God is going to touch and who will come today to say, I'm giving my life to Jesus Christ and I want to walk with Him and serve Him. Now, if you wait past the first word of the song, it'll be harder the second. If you wait past the first stanza, it'll be harder the second. And so when we've had our prayer and we begin to sing, we want you to step out and come. Give your life to Christ. Join the church. Rededicate yourself to Him on this good day. Find the freedom of the Lordship of Christ. Father, I pray this morning that in this last second, these moments that linger, that you'll draw the net now and bring to your kingdom, to yourself, those who need to be saved. And I pray that every person here who, whose heart you've touched will respond positively on the very first word. And there are those of us who have drifted away from God, and I pray you'll bring us back. Place in this fellowship those who need to join our church today, Father, so we can be the complete body of Christ. Oh, save the lost today, I pray in Jesus' name, for His sake. Now, in a spirit of prayer, you come while we stand, while we sing.